0: was great, and the invitation is open for all of you to transfer to Southern Nazarene. And if you need directions, I brought them with me. So, thank you guys very, very much. I am a bit cynical, so it's, it's at times hard for me to be led in worship, but I was tonight for sure. So thank you, thank you very, very much. You know, the term revival is an interesting term. It's kind of feeding back up here a little bit. I'm not sure if you guys can hear that out there. There we go. The, the term revival is an interesting term. I, uh, I'm trying to work through in my head what it means. I, I, um, I have an idea, though, that, that I am here to remind some people as to how and why we are Christian. And so maybe uh, this is the fall reminder I don't know about revival, but it's the fall reminder. Tonight's sermon is as much testimony as it is sermon, because I'm going to kind of talk through the sort of the the, sort of the mental argument that I have had over the last several years, a couple of decades worth of, of faith and belief. And, and to be honest with you, though I, have, I was raised in a great household and I heard the right kinds of messages and, and I was in good churches growing up too and still somehow I came out with a faith that was poorly rooted and it wasn't until I actually got into my professional ministry, I was a youth pastor and had a very significant crisis of faith and I think without this particular passage of scripture and some of the stories I'm going to tell you now, I don't know that I would still be here. I certainly wouldn't be in ministry, and I'm not sure I would be Christian. And so I want to kind of walk you through that particular season of my life and that entire conversation that I was having with God and with other people and internally. And, and I hope that in the process of telling you this entire conversation that something will resonate with you. I hope it will resonate with that person here today who is not sure that they can continue being a Christian for the reasons that you've been a Christian. or continue You're not sure that you can continue being a Christian as you have been a Christian this whole time. I, I hope also it will resonate with those of you who do have your rootedness in the right place, and yet you do, in fact, need a reminder every once in a while of how you're Christian and why you're Christian. Because I, I want to say this to you. It, it is possible to hear a version of Christianity that I don't believe is sustainable. At least it wasn't for me. It, it all kind of starts, your version of Christianity starts with your understanding of God. If you show me your picture of God, I will show you the shape of your faith. Does that make sense? I mean, if you if you have scary God picture, then that will tell me something about how you live out your faith. For example, uh, I, I used to travel for our school, Southern Nazarene, and uh, used to sing for the school. And we would go to youth camps and... I've spent literally, literally more than 50 weeks of my life at Nazarene Youth Camps, and so I've heard a lot of Thursday morning, uh, Thursday evening scary sermons, right? And I've heard a lot of those sermons that go something like this, God is coming back, and if he comes back and he finds you in a movie theater, what are you going to do then? <laughs> Just weird stuff like that. In fact, the one that I remember most clearly was in, I can't really tell you where it was, it was Fort Worth. Anyway, I, and, and this guy was at the front of the sanctuary, and he snapped the entire time. For 20 minutes, he snapped because he said the end could come just like that, right? And are you going to be ready when the end comes? He started walking through this entire laundry list of sins that we all had committed perhaps that day, right? And he said, well, what if God finds you? Oh, we got some snappers. See, it could happen. At any point, it could be just like that. He said, the end could come just like that. And will you be ready? Will you be ready? Now, you can tell already what he's trying to do, right? He is trying to motivate you to be Christian. Now, how is he trying to motivate you to be Christian? By scaring the bejesus out of you, right? right. So he started talking about the end times, and he started having a particular interpretation, a particular read on certain passages of Scripture, which, by the way, I don't agree with. I see those passages differently. But he was interpreting them a specific way so as to then use Scripture and the Bible and God now on on his side to try to scare us all into faith because it could all happen. It could all end just like that. And he started talking about the carnage at the end of all things, right? By the way, if, if someone is trying to scare you to death with the end of all things language, be careful. Hang on to your wallet because they're probably trying to sell you a book or a movie ticket. Anyhow. So, um, he started talking about some of the things that would happen at the very, very end, right? Very scary things are going to happen at the very, very end. And in fact, at the very, very, very end, there's going to be a trumpet blast. Now, I was there as a college student with a lot of other high school students, right? But I got to tell you, even though we were big, burly college kids around all these other high school students, we were getting kind of antsy and nervous ourselves. We are kind of waiting for him to open the altar, <laughs> right? Because we were scared he said, at the very, very end, there'll be a trumpet blast. You'll never guess what this idiot had at the back of the sanctuary.
1: <laughs>
0: Another idiot with a trumpet. <laughs> and so he kept snapping, he kept talking, and sure enough, he at some point gave some sort of a clue or a signal, I'm not sure what it was, and that guy cut loose on that trumpet back there, and I wet myself. <laughs> Now, what do you think happened when he opened the altar? That's right. I was throwing high school kids out of the way to get to the altar. <laughs> I was getting down to the altar. No matter what, I was going to get down to that altar was throwing freshmen out of the way just to get to that <laughs> altar. And when I got down there, I was like, Okay, God, I'm sorry. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. I don't, don't want any of this to happen to me. Blah, 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 blah. I was petrified. And I need to tell you, I was an amazing Christian as long as I was petrified. About 40 minutes. But I was a solid, saintly Christian for 40 minutes. And then when the fear wore off, so did the commitment. Now, if you have this particular view of God, if you understand God to be judge, jury, and executioner, and you find yourself afraid of that image of God, and that is your motivation for faith, if that is how and why you're a Christian, not only is there a certain shape to your Christianity, but I've got to tell you something, that is not sustainable. And when you are no longer afraid, that will compromise your Christian commitment. Everybody with me? Now there are other... There are other views of God. It's not all judge, jury, executioner. Sometimes it's the mom who guilts you to death when you don't call home every half an hour. Right? Now, don't raise your hand or point, but do you know somebody like this? It's the God who, for whom you never quite measure up. And they're quick to remind you that you never quite measure up. You know, your brother did it so much better. Your sister did it so much better. They're such nice... The other family has such nice kids. <laughs> And so it gives you this faith that is sort of a comparison sort of faith. You only understand your faith in comparison to somebody else's faith. And I need to tell you this, too. That also, you'll find that that is unsustainable as well. Because eventually, you'll get so tired of the comparison game, you'll recognize that you will never actually win the comparison game. You'll get so tired of it that you will give up altogether. Now, again, this is testimony. I'm walking you through some of the different understandings of God that I had and the different sort of manifestations of faith that I had that were not sustainable. And and then there's sort of the cheerleader God is what I'll call him. The one that... that you can get so hyped up and so pepped up. I don't know if you've ever been to an NYC. We had a pretty good one in St. Louis, right? But there were some other good ones in years past, and, and the one in, in Toronto that I remember in 1999 was incredible. And, but there have been other situations. There have been other services. There have been other mission trips, let's say. When I got so hyped up, and it seemed like God was carrying pom-poms around, as long as he was excited, as long as I was excited, my Christian commitment was good. As long as I lived on the mountaintops, It was good. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But when I went down into the valley where real life happens, (laughs) if that was my image of God and this was my manifestation of faith in response to that image of God, then somehow, when I wasn't excited, I wasn't quite as Christian. So far, so good? So, what I'm saying to you is, I don't know your story, but right now I'm just telling you mine, okay? What I'm saying to you is, I cycled through the image of scary God, the image of the the one that made me feel guilty a lot, and then the one that was sort of the cheerleader God. And so my faith was either motivated by fear, or by guilt, or by hype. And I got old enough and honest enough to recognize that none of those were sustainable. Did you hear what I said? I got old enough and honest enough to recognize that none of those were sustainable. Problem was, when I finally figured that out, I was 25 and a youth pastor. And so I walked into my pastor's office and I said, you probably should know this. It's not adding up for me anymore. And if I don't find some other images of God and then some other motivations to be Christian... I don't know if I can make this work. I don't know if I can say what I say with a straight face. Not only that, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my life. Does Does that make sense to you guys? That there is a certain motivation that leads to a certain kind of faith. But you recognize, right, that not all of these different understandings of God motivate faith in ways that are sustainable. Do you understand that? You know that the hype doesn't last forever, right? Some of you can already tell. Some of you sitting where you are already know that guilt has run its course and it can no longer significantly shape their faith. Now, we can still get to high school kids, but you're college students. You've figured it out. And fear. You can only scare people so many times. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I, I'm curious. If I did have you raise your hands, I wonder how many of you would, would admit to me That someone at some point tried to scare you into faith. Yeah. A lot of you have had that experience. There is still in Oklahoma City, uh, center of the progressive culture universe as far as I can tell, there is still in Oklahoma City a hell house. There's a church that runs a hell house every Halloween. And here's what they do. They take a whole wing of their church and they heat it up to ungodly temperatures, right? Then they have different cells of hell. Different depictions of different scenarios that where people die these ugly, gory, painful deaths. And then they demonstrate different scenes of hell. Now at the end, you're actually ushered into a very cool air-conditioned sanctuary and asked to pray the sinner's prayer so that you can make a decision at that point. i got to tell you, maybe that will work for you. I've got to tell you, where I am right now, that will never work ever again. And if that's what faith is, I'm, I'm ready to turn in my church keys. It just doesn't work for me. And my hunch is I'm not the only one. And so I started saying, okay, God, I need to see you in a fresh sort of way. I need a better, more reliable image of God. God, I need to see you in a fresh sort of way so that somehow I can go about this Christian thing in a fresh sort of way. Because God, truth of the matter is, God, I want to be Christian." There's something inside of me that still wants to be Christian, but left with these other images of God and the other resulting manifestations of faith. I can't do it like that anymore. So God, I need something different. And I got it. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12. We are going to end up in Genesis chapter 15... And I'm going to tell you some things that, that may be somewhat surprising to you, but I'm telling you they are straight out of the Bible. I'm going to give you a, a perspective on a, on a hero of faith. We're going to end up in chapter 15, but it's important that we start in chapter 12. And I don't need you to read backwards at all, not into chapter 11, but I will tell you this. What you have in chapter 11, at the very end of chapter 11, you have the retelling of the story of Abram and Sarai, at least their ancestry. Abram, who will become Abraham. I said to this, this to you this morning, that God's in the name-changing business. Well, this is Abram, but at some point he will be Abraham. But we're only going to call him Abram, got it? Because that's what the Bible says here. And Sarai, she will someday be called Sarah, but Sarai is what we're going to call her because she's not yet Sarah. That did not happen until chapter 17. We're just going to be in 12 through 15 today. So this is Abram and Sarai. And what we're told at the end of chapter 11 is that Abram and Sarai are childless. Childless. Infertile. You know, for us, the term infertile, infertility is sort of a scientific, medical sort of term, but for them it was kind of a religious curse. To be infertile was to be cursed. Now, these were not God-fearing people just yet. In fact, It is straight out of the Bible. In Joshua 24, don't turn to it now, but straight out of the Bible. In Joshua 24, but check my work. You need to go see it later. It says that Abram worshipped the gods beyond the river. Abram was not yet a God-fearing man. In fact, the gods beyond the river, for all intents and purposes, we think that these were fertility cults that Abram and Sarai participated in. Fertility cults. How many of you have taken world history and you know terms like the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia? or ancient Sumer. Have you ever heard of the term ziggurat? You know what a ziggurat is? All right. Well, we think that Abram and Sarai participated in those sorts of fertility cults. So it was a really, really, really bad thing to not be fertile when you were practicing members of a fertility cult. And so they understood themselves to be cursed by the god or gods that they were trying their best to worship. follow and and now when we find them they are up in years they're a long way up in years in fact old enough that they could probably with reasonable expectations they could probably stop hoping and praying for kids they were that age they were that old make sense so here you have abram and sarai who understand themselves to be cursed or at least not blessed who are probably practicing members in a different faith system altogether, and then the voice comes seemingly out of nowhere and says this. Now, I'm reading out of the NRSV. I don't know what you're reading out of, but first three verses of chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, time for you to feedback a little bit, okay? Group participation. In the relationship that now exists between Abram and God, who moved first? Ready? Go. Are you sure? Yeah, you're sure? (laughs) Remember, this Abram and this Sarai, they were worshiping other gods beyond the river. Do not forget this. Do not forget this. This is huge. This is foundational for your faith and my faith. You ready for this? God moved first. You're not always told that. Sometimes you are told, or at least left with the impression, that you've got to get it together and then come to God. That's not true. God moves first. If we're talking about God and Saul, who had become Paul, who moved first? It's exactly right. Now, why do we think otherwise? God, in His grace, in His passion, in His love, God moves first. For you too. God moves first. If this is a dance... God's leading. And he calls to Abram and Sarai and he says, okay, I will bless you and I will bless you with a lineage. I will bless you with a family tree. I will bless you with descendants. Come on, follow me. And for the promise of a child, they get up inexplicably. They get up and they move. Can you imagine what that conversation must have been like between Abram and Sarai? Now, Sarai, I know you're 70. And I know you're pretty well settled here. But a voice (laughs) said, we should move to nowhere, and I think we should go. But for the promise of a child, she went too. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the whole of chapter 12. It's kind of PG-13. Would you like to read it? Is that yes? Okay. Turn over to verse 10. We're going to read this. So Abram and Sarai, they, they move. They are obedient. But Abram is not yet a hero in faith. Is everybody with me there? Abram is not yet fixed. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing, right, that, that God continues to move first. By the way, when God moves first, he, don't, he doesn't do it just once. God seems to always be moving first in this relationship with Abram. So maybe He does with you too. God moves first. God moves first. Abram screws up, starting in verse 10. If you don't believe it, watch this. Now, we're all adults here, mostly. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. This must have been one hot 70-year-old woman. Right? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. I love it. I love the Bible. I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared on your account. Now, here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh collects beautiful women. He collects beautiful women. And if he has to, in order to collect a beautiful woman, he'll kill the husband. Does that make sense? Now, he may not kill a brother, but he's going to kill the husband in order to collect a beautiful woman. It doesn't matter to him what ethnicity. He collects beautiful women. All right, here we go. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was, in fact, very beautiful at 70. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. He paid for Sarai, and Abram led him. So in other words, what Abram says to Sarai is this, look, I'm the guy who's been given the promise. You've got to make sure that I live, okay? Now, I don't know what's going to happen to you in Pharaoh's house. It may be bad but at least they won't kill me. And who knows, maybe, maybe Pharaoh will pay me for you. Now, that is not a conversation that went well either, right? But she went along with it. Now, there is some indication here that Pharaoh collected women and not just to look at them. <laughs> some of you get a little bit squirmy. I like it. All right. <laughs> Verse 17, so after he pays for Sarai, watch what happens. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him and they sent him on the way with his wife and all that he had. wonder what that next conversation with Sarai was like. Not exactly a hero in faith, was he? In other words, so far, in the relationship between God and Abram, who's the central character? Even when Abram messes up and for all intents and purposes turns his back on the promise. Man, if there's going to be a relationship at that point, someone's going to have to carry it, and apparently it's not going to be Abram. So who carries it? Talk back to me. Who carries it? It's God. Now God has promised a child. We've already said that in chapter 12. I want you to turn over to chapter 15. It's going to get even more strange here before it sort of resolves itself. God has promised Abram a child, but several years have passed. So many years have passed since the original promise that now Abram is starting to doubt God. You don't have to raise your hand, but my hunch is I'm not the only one who's doubted God or the promises of God. Right? Right? So many years have passed now that Abram's getting a little bit lippy with God. God, you said. And I'm not seeing any evidence yet. So here you go. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. God's coming to pat Abram on the back and encourage him again. God's making his move again. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, (laughs) what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. He's now old enough that he's starting to worry about his own death and who's going to get his stuff. And he really, he left a very comfortable life before on the promise of a child. So at this point, to not yet have a child means that God has not been faithful to his side of the bargain, or at least it seemed that way to Abram. And in fact, he's right. Had he died that day without a child, all of his belongings would have gone to Eliezer of Damascus, a slave in his household. They had to go somewhere, and there was no son, there was no child. So he'd go to this slave. But the word of the Lord came to him. In verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to Abram, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, here's what that very important phrase means. When Abram again believed God... God recognized Abram's belief as confidence in the relationship. Make sense? Now, he didn't just promise him a kid. He actually promised him a place to raise a family, too. He promised him not just a kid, but land as well. So, here comes that promise again. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, here he goes again, How am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, what happens next is incredibly odd. (laughs) Incredibly odd to us, but not incredibly odd to Abram. Because what happens next is is what's called actually, and what would have been called way back when, in their native tongue, they would have called it a suzerain treaty. It, It was a treaty struck up between two parties, of unequal strength. In fact, it would be a treaty struck up between a winning side and a losing side. And what God here says is, go get me all the ingredients necessary for a suzerain treaty. So Abram has doubted God again. And it seems like, I think this is how Abram interprets it, when God says, okay, you have doubted me for one last time. Go get all the ingredients necessary for a suzerain treaty and we're going to make this public sort of ceremony in which you're going to commit to me for the last time. That's how Abram took it. Now did you see the little shopping list that he gave Abram right here? All ingredients for a suzerain treaty. Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now ultimately it lets the birds go... But here's what he does with these three-year-old animals. Now, three years old. I don't know if you've spent much time on a farm, but a three-year-old animal is pretty well full-grown. Heifer, goat, and a ram. In a suzerain treaty, what you do is you take these animals, full-grown that they are, and you cut them in half like this. And then you take those two halves of that bloody carcass. You take the heifer, You put the front half here, you leave a walking space, and you put the back half here. Then, once you've cut that goat in half, you put the front half of that bloody carcass here, and the back half here. That's kind of gross, isn't it? Then you take the front half of the ram, you leave a walking space, and you put the back half here. So what you've made here is a pretty horrible, horrifying little bloody path. But this is what God demanded that Abram do. Now, let's stop. Don't read ahead. What must have been going through Abram's mind? See, because he is familiar with Suzerain treaties. He has seen these things happen before. A lot of times they happen after some sort of a military conflict. And let's say that this side of the sanctuary completely dominates and thrashes this side of the sanctuary, and what happens is there's a suzerain treaty. Amen. Way to go. (laughs) Fight the power. All right. So what happens is this side over here demands that this side over here furnish the animals for a suzerain treaty, and then they're all sort of cut up, and you have this big bloody path. Then the leader of this side over here takes the leader of this side over here, grabs that person by the back of the neck, announces the terms of the surrender, Then at the completion of that announcement of the terms of surrender then the stronger party forces the weaker party to walk this bloody path and stop and consider the fate of the animal at every step. And at the end of this little bloody gauntlet, the point is pretty well made. If you don't hold up your end of this bargain, there'll be a fourth step to this bloody path. Now again... Abram has seen this before. What do you think is going through his mind? I tell you what, here's what I think is going through his mind. Probably something similar to what was going through my mind when that idiot was doing this. Right? Now again, it's just us. Don't raise your hand. Don't point. (laughs) But listen to me. how many of us have those days where we still consider God to be the giant, big, bloodthirsty God who motivates our decisions by scaring us, leveraging us, intimidating us? Abram seems all too willing to accept that view of God right here, right now. And so he does as he's told. He goes and he gets three animals. He cuts them in half. It's a big bloody mess. He arranges the pieces. There's a bloody path. All right, let's go back to Scripture. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Well, I guess so. Now what you have next is sort of the terms, and, and actually they don't sound that bad. Now you get to verse 17. Now watch this. If you're not paying attention, if you're sleeping, (laughs) or if you are drifting, you're going to miss this. And I want to tell you, verse 17, Genesis 15, 17, turned the universe for me. Everybody here? Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when there is smoke and fire, God is present. All right? You can see that, right? In the, in the New Testament, at Pentecost, there's smoke and there's fire. But also in the Old Testament, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. Here, before all of that, the pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. Here, you have smoke and a fire. God shows up for the Suzerain Treaty. Abram thought that he showed up to grab Abram by the back of the neck and force him to walk this path. But look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Some of you missed it. Some of you missed that the universe just changed. Abram shows up believing that he's about to be grabbed by the nap of the neck and forced down this bloody path. But God shows up, and just as Abram's about to take his first step, God himself cuts in front of Abram, and God himself, God himself walks the bloody path. Do you know what just happened? Abram showed up thinking he was going to have to make an ultimate commitment to God to stay out of God's doghouse, But what happened was God showed up and God made the ultimate commitment to Abram. You're not as excited about this as I thought you might be. God walked the path. God seems to have said this, if I don't own up to my commitment, I'll be the next bloody step. This would not be the last time that God would take this sort of posture to prove and demonstrate his passion for his people. Now, where in here does God demand that Abram make a perfect commitment to God? You can look all day and you won't find it. what you will find is that God has made a perfect commitment to Abraham. Now, we believe, and I believe this, that you have to respond to God's commitment to you. That you have to take Him up on it. That you have to say yes. But please understand this. While I believe that deeply and thoroughly... If you, sitting where you are, understand yourself to be a Christian today, you better know that it has more to do with God than it does with you. If, sitting where you are today, you experience what you understand to be a growing, thriving, deepening relationship with God, please know that while your commitment is needed and necessary and good, it has more to do with God's commitment to you than it does your commitment to God. Listen to me. The universe needs to be turned upside down for some of you. Listen to me. Christianity. Christianity is that odd way of being alive wherein we recognize that God continually makes the first move with us, leads in the dance with us, and leaves us the opportunity to choose Him back. But God constantly and consistently and continually chooses you and He even knows you. And He still chooses you catch that. God knows you and still chooses you. He even knows that about you. And he still chooses you. You see, on those days when your commitment wasn't up to snuff, God's was. On those days when you could not find it within yourself to be faithful, God was. I told you I needed another image. I needed another image of God to carry me into another phase of Christianity. And I got it in a pretty unlikely uh, sort of situation. There was a young lady in our group by the name of Allison. And Allison had a very rare disease. There were only eight, at the time, there were only eight recorded cases in the United States. Called, it was called Melnick's Needles Syndrome. And it, it, it was a... It was a, it was a uh, It was a a disease that caused her bone structure to stop growing, but her internal organs never did. And so her bone structure was, she was tiny and small and frail, but her lungs and her liver and her heart and her stomach kept growing and pressing on this bone structure. And frankly, we all knew that at some point she would probably drown. Essentially, she would drown. That's how she would die. Now, she contracted this disease, or at least they discovered it when she was eight, and they told her parents, she's only got about six months to live. When she came to our church and entered into our lives, she was 16. This was one tough little girl. Now, she was only this big around. I mean, she was tiny. Now, she could kind of barely kind of stand up, right, and walk around, but she had to have oxygen all the time. All the time. But this young lady understood faith. She understood the commitment of God. She understood the ramifications of faith. And she immediately was a leader, not just in our youth group, but in our church. She was a giant perspective shaper all the time. In fact, she would say things just sort of out of the blue that would be huge, huge, huge perspective shapers, and not just for her church, but also for her family. And so imagine what her parents felt one day when she said to them, During her junior year of high school, I'll never go to my senior prom. Even if I'm alive, it's not the kind of thing I'll be able to do. Well, she did live throughout her senior year. And a young, heroic man in our youth group dressed up in a tux and got down on one knee and asked her to the prom. And it was absolutely gorgeous. It was a huge night. It was a great night. But then she also said this to her dad. I wish I could go to youth camp, but I don't see how I could ever go to youth camp. Well, that just got us all pretty motivated, right? And so we figured out a way to get her to youth camp. And, and I'm not sure how we pulled it off, but, but we had this little band called Mercy Me at our camp for a concert that night. And Mercy Me was going to sing that night her favorite song, which was, at the time, it was, it was I Can Only Imagine, right? It was that huge song. Remember that one that got completely worn out on all the radio stations? Before it got worn out, this was still a very popular song. It was Allison's favorite song. And I was with Allison at the very back of a very long sanctuary, probably at least this long, and there was just people, wall-to-wall people. And they called for Allison from the front. And it scared me to death, but the crowd kind of got into it, and they picked her up, wheelchair and all, and passed her all the way to the front. I oh, know, it was horrifying. We were always we scared to death. And put her on the platform, and then they sang right up in her face. They sang, I Can Only Imagine. It was just, it was one of those heaven and earth overlapping sorts of moments. And it was just unbelievable. Allison graduated high school and went on to SNU to study social work. Who better to study social work than Allison Lester? And she did great her freshman year. And into her sophomore year, she had to take a little bit of a reduced load during the fall semester because she just wasn't feeling well. We all kind of knew how it was going to go. There would come a point at which, when Allison was unable to breathe, she would probably be at home with her mom, and her mom would call her dad, who to this day still runs the entire physical plant there at Southern Nazarene. Her dad would rush home to their home in Bethany, and then rush her to the hospital, and they would call me, and I would try to meet them there. Well, it happened during that fall semester. And it happened just like that. Allison found herself unable to breathe. So her mom called her dad. Said, Ron, it's pretty bad. You need to get here. Well, by the time Ron got back to the house, The paramedics were already there and the ambulance was already there. And it didn't matter how she postured herself, she could not breathe. They tried to lay her down flat of her back and she couldn't breathe. They tried to roll her over on her side, she couldn't breathe. Tried to sit her up, she couldn't breathe. Tried to put her up on the gurney, she couldn't breathe. Turns out, it's the only way she could breathe. She could only breathe if her dad got up on the gurney. And then she sat on her dad's lap. Face to face. Chest to chest. And leaned into him. It's the only way she could. And so, he got up on the gurney. And he put Allison up on his lap. And she did the best she could to get her thin frail, short arms around his giant, burly body. But she couldn't. But he's a big dude. And he wrapped his arms nearly all the way around her twice. And they loaded them into the back of the ambulance. And when I saw them at the hospital, in the emergency room, they were still in that same posture. It was Dad up on the gurney carrying the relationship. And it was the little girl in his lap doing all she could. And it was mom and dad whispering in her ears, It's okay, honey. Just breathe. Just breathe. Now, I'm going to tell you how that story ends in just a second, but I want to stop there and I want to say this to you. Not only was it one of the most proud moments that I have ever had as a pastor, being allowed to be in the room when something that beautiful was happening, I got my image that carries me to this day. You know, there have been times when I have listened as teachers and preachers and other kinds of people have given me this entire laundry list of all the things I needed to be able to do in order to be Christian. I'm going to reduce that for you today. You ready? Just breathe. The God of the universe has postured himself just for you. The God of the universe has postured himself just so, just for you, and says to you now just breathe. My arms are bigger, my arms are stronger, my arms will carry the relationship when yours can't. But stay here with me and breathe. Stay here with me and breathe. Forget the young youth pastor part. The believer really needed to see that posture of God and needed to recognize that my Christianity was not something that I invented and then gave to God. My Christianity was something that God did in the fact that he postured himself just so that he could have me heaped up on his lap and say to me, just breathe. Participate. That's how you participate. Just breathe. Is it hard to be Christian? Sometimes. Sometimes it's really hard to be Christian. How do you do it? Well, you just breathe. Because it matters more what God has decided for you than what you have decided for God. Do I want you to decide for God? Absolutely. I want you to participate. Breathe. But breathe while in the arms of the one while in the embrace, in the arms of the one who makes your life of faith possible. Just breathe. I could, I'm not sure how long I stood there and watched this. But kind of like she had lived for a, a very long time with this disease, much longer than the doctors thought that she could. She existed in that state much longer than the doctors said she could. Much longer than the doctors thought she'd be able to. Seems like as long as Ron was there holding her like this, she found it within her to breathe. Now the breathing did taper off. And it started to get critical, but nobody was rushing around or moving around. The doctors had already said to Ron and Kara, her mom, We've already done all that we can do. There is nothing more that we can do. So just hold her. Hold her until she slips away. And that's exactly how that went. Her breathing got more and more and more shallow until finally her mom started to whisper in her ear, and her dad did too. It's okay. There's somebody else ready to hold you. she slipped on. And I never thought I would say at the beginning of my pastoral ministry that there would be a death scenario that would be beautiful, but I can't tell you how beautiful that was. And with that family's permission, I traveled the country telling that story because they agreed was in that scenario and in that circumstance. And Ron and Kara tell me to tell you if there is something in this that allows God to be imaged in such a way that you can breathe and carry on, and praise God. Now, for me, the image of scary God is not going to maintain. A sustainable faith. The image of guilt-ready God is not going to maintain a sustainable faith with me. The hype God, fun as it is, is not going to maintain a sustainable faith where I'm concerned. But I'll tell you what: the God who constantly makes the first move the God who constantly commits and continually commits and sacrificially commits and who beckons me to breathe, the God who loves me and leaves me in a position to live out my response, my life becomes the I love you too. That has been sustainable for me for at least the last 17 years. Now, I don't know how I I don't know how you have rooted your faith. I, I would caution you that if your life of faith is anything other than a response to God's first move of love and grace, if it's somehow rooted in fear, guilt, or hype, or something else, I would caution you at least consider that it could be rooted somewhere else. So maybe there are some people in the room who would say, you know what? I've actually never rooted my faith anywhere. But I think I'd like to root it there, in the God who walks the path. Maybe there are some of you in here like me who grew up trying lots of different places to root faith. (laughs) And maybe you have heard something tonight that resonates with you. And maybe you, like me, several years ago, said, I would rather root it in the love of God that moves first so that my life can be the lived out I love you too So, John, what do you want us to do? Well, Lionel, I don't care what you play. Want you play something soft and quiet? Not much rhythm to it, okay? Can you do that? All right. A- and this has the capacity. This has the potential to get really corny really fast, and I apologize ahead of time. I know I'm talking to college students. I know that there perhaps is some cynicism in the room. I promise you. I'm one of the more cynical people in the room. But here's what I needed at some point. I needed a tangible expression that my faith, that my Christianity was rooted somewhere else. Here, here's the potentially corny part. I actually needed someone to put their arms around me and to say to me, just breathe. This is where life and faith begins. It begins in the heart of God. And then it comes to you. You didn't think faith began with you, did you? Faith is a response to God's first move. And so, I've asked a couple of people to join me up here. People that I believe for you can be a credible witness. I, I, I know this woman I brought with me. This is my wife, Kelly. One of the most formative, formative influences in my life. And I know, I know that God reaches through her arms and can reach around you. And some of you may want to count out, Kelly and I are strangers, it's okay. But if you'd like to, we would be honored to be the tangible expression of God's first move towards you. And we will hold you just long enough to say to you, you are loved, You are treasured, and you can breathe. I've asked your campus pastor to do this as well. I I have watched him, and I have listened to him ache over you. This is a pastor. Please, Please don't think that this is just an academician. As smart as he is, this man wants to pastor you. And so I'm going to stand over here. I want Kelly stand in the middle and Corey to stand over there. And this is as odd as it's going to get. I, I'm, we're not going to sing a whole bunch. <laughs> and I'm not even going to make it easy on you by having you stand. And we're going to take some time. If you need to go steady, you can go steady. But my hunch is there's somebody in the room that needs this tangible expression, this tangible reminder that faith starts with the arms of God. And you do us the honor of allowing us to communicate that to you. We are, just for tonight at least, the imperfect representations of the arms of God that wrap themselves around you, that say to you, just breathe. And if you'd like to take that step and root your faith, Or reroot your faith in love so that you can live out your response. Then this little exercise is for you. You may not need it, and that's totally okay. If you don't, that's okay. Please be quiet. If you need to leave, leave quietly. But there might be somebody in the room. There might be somebody in the room that really does need this. Father, you, uh, you've you made this first move with me so many times, I don't even count anymore. I don't even keep track anymore. But I do want you to keep moving first. God, I want my faith to be motivated by your love for me. I can live out my
1: response.
0: God, I remember clearly. I remember clearly the day that this switched and changed for me. My prayer, Lord, is that someone my prayer, Lord, is that someone tonight, at least one person tonight, can have that same sort of universe changing sort of moment that will allow for the life of faith to be moved and motivated, finally, not by fear, and not by guilt, and not by hype, but by this simple, consistent, continual, suffering, sacrificial love that you have for us. Though I'm not perfect, though none of these people up front are perfect, dear God, just for the moment, Lord, may people understand that as we wrap our arms around them, that it is you, It's you and all of your glorious, non-scorekeeping, incredible love. It's you who actually wraps your arms around people and leaves them in a place where all they can do is breathe. people over here, your president, and the district superintendent as well. If you would like to begin or begin again tonight, now's your chance. And we'll wait here for a little while while you think about it or pray about it. I'm not going to say amen because I'd like to maintain this posture of prayer. Do you have some time for this? Who will be first? down and pray.